Hi there, and welcome to another edition of the 1% Better Podcast with your host, Rob O'Donoghue. Hey guys, so this week with travel commitments and work, I have been unable to release as much content as normal, but the 1% Better show does go ahead and this is it. So just a quick intro, it's with Eben Alexander and Karen Newell. First time I've had two guests on the show and it was certainly an interesting one. Eben came to prominence a number of years back when he released a book called Proof of Heaven about an NDE or a near-death experience that he had a few years previous. What makes this one even more interesting is the fact that Eben is and was a neuroscientist and had zero belief in NDEs prior to his own experience. He came out of that, wrote a very detailed book about it. We talk about that during the podcast. And his life partner, Karen, who is the co-founder of a company called Sacred Acoustics, and lots of details about that in the show notes, as well as the other books that Eben has brought out, how the brainwave technology that her company develop allows you to access parts of the consciousness that you would not normally be able to get to. And this is where Eben has been able to reconnect with the world that he describes and experienced during his NDE. So look, it's a really, really interesting one. Delighted to have somebody of Eben's background on the show and Karen's experience able to talk about that during this podcast as well. So as I said at the start, back to normal releasing next week with some new shows but this is one i really wanted to get out despite the other challenges travel wise and i hope you enjoy it and again just to remind you check out the show notes lots of links there to even's website to karen's sacred acoustics website and there's also a link to a free online course on even Alexander's site, 33 Days, it's called. There's a free 20-minute sound meditation MB3 on Sacred Acoustics as well. So lots of goodies. Hope you check them out. And as always, I hope you have a great weekend and enjoy the episode. Thanks, as always, for listening. Take care. Hey, folks. Welcome to another episode of the 1% Better podcast. And this time, a bit of a, I suppose, a unique session, a unique interview. I have two interviewees on the other side uh normally it's one-to-one but this time it's uh two which is great and not only is that great but uh both are i suppose experts in their field and from i suppose from dr eben alexander's perspective a global name uh for the show which is a big coup so to both of you thank you so much for for uh, taking the time out and coming on to the show well, rob thanks so much for having us it's great to be here yes thank you brilliant and as we were just talking before we got started it's the day before the 4th of july so i'm hopefully not interrupting any of your holiday plans um so we'll you know hopefully make it fun as well as uh informative we're considering this part of our holiday so yeah <laughs> brilliant so i reached out um i've read proof of heaven recently and i think a few years ago when the book came out it was something i was aware of uh, in my own consciousness i guess and we'll probably tie into consciousness a little bit more but it's it's funny how how these things evolve i interviewed a a guest about two or three months ago and at the end of every podcast i have a couple of questions that are standard and one of them is recommendations of of a book and my guest recommended proof of heaven and I was listening to it back and editing, and I said, oh, I actually have that book. I had it on my shelf and, and, and then read it. And uh, and from there I said, wow, it would be really cool to invite 
uh, extend an invite to uh, Eben to come on to the show and and here we are so it's interesting how all these things kind of come come together so with that little intro Eben I think it'd be great if we could start with your story uh, obviously I'm familiar with it and probably a lot of people are but it'd be great for maybe for those that are new to it to just maybe talk a little bit about your your background your your career and you know events I suppose leading up to the 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 topic around proof of heaven. Okay, well, it, uh, I think it's important to point out uh, that I had spent the first 54 years of my life, that is the time before my coma, um, honing a very kind of scientific worldview. My father was a neurosurgeon. I trained as a neurosurgeon. I subscribed to all of modern uh, kind of conventional scientific uh, thinking, which is basically a position called physicalism, the, the notion that only the physical world exists. And I thought that someday we would discover the workings of the brain and the neural correlates of consciousness and that you complete the picture. Uh, the problem is that's not the way it works out. And, and the way that my journey unfolded to show me the falsehood of our conventional scientific viewpoint had to do with uh, an extremely uh, aggressive and rapidly progressive case of uh, bacterial meningoencephalitis that occurred back in November 2008. Uh, and I was driven rapidly into coma, literally within about three hours of symptom onset. I was seizing and deep in coma, which is where I remained for the next seven days. The blessing of it all has to do with the fact that um, my doctors had full evidence of the destruction of my neocortex, the human part of the brain, from the moment I got into the emergency room, already unconscious. Um, and they knew from my neurologic exams, my CT and MRI scans and laboratory values that I had an extremely uh, threatening and deadly case of bacterial uh, meningitis. Mm. And it turns out that none of my journeys should have been possible, according to the principles of modern neuroscience, given that destruction of the human part of my brain. And yet what I actually witnessed was a far richer, more real and alive world than I had ever experienced in this material realm. Uh, and as much as people might be tempted to call such things hallucinations, dreams, drug effects, what have you, mm -hmm. my neocortex was so heavily damaged in a documented fashion that none of those explanations work. And I think that's why proof of heaven has had, had such a major impact on the scientific community and medical community at large because of that complete mismatch between my experience and and the uh, damage to my brain. Now, very briefly, the journey itself, as I describe in detail in Proof of Heaven, started in a murky, uh, coarse, unresponsive realm that I call the earthworm's eye view. For a long time, I thought that was simply the best consciousness my physical brain could muster while the neocortex was being so heavily damaged uh, by infection. Uh, but I was rescued from that by a slowly spinning white light that came with a perfect musical melody and led like uh, through a portal up into this rich, ultra-real uh, gateway valley. Uh, it had many Earth-like features. For example, I was a speck of awareness on a butterfly wing, and there were waterfalls into crystal blue pools. There were thousands of souls in this meadow down below us, all dancing, lots of joy and festivities. And yet above were these spiritual elements, these swooping orbs of, of golden light that eat when I described them coming back to this world, I said they were angelic choirs, and they were emanating chants and anthems and hymns that were just stupendous and awesome in their power that would thunder through me. Mm. And 
basically all of this awareness went far beyond anything you could ever see with the eyes or hear with the ears. Huge parts of those realms we experience by becoming vast uh, swathes of those realms. So that's why it's so hard to put these kind of experiences mm. into words in our sure. human language. But from that gateway valley where I met this beautiful guardian angel, and those who have read Proof of Heaven will realize that four months after my coma, the identity of that guardian angel helped me to clarify the reality of my journey. Um, but uh, she gave me a beautiful message that I think is central uh, to all on earth from this uh, journey, and that is you are deeply loved and cherished forever. You have nothing to fear. You will be taken care of. In essence, we have... Of the ability to really trust in the universe. And also, we can discover so much by going within. That's why Karen and I, in our work and in our recent book, Living in a Mindful Universe, are all about exploring these realms of consciousness as sentient beings. Because as we always say, you don't have to die or be smoked down by meningitis to get every bit of this. Mm -hmm. uh, all you have to do is go within consciousness through meditation, centering prayer, what have you. Now, in my journey, my NDE journey, it did not end in that beautiful gateway valley. Turns out that uh, once again, music in the form of those uh, heavenly choirs and angelic choirs above provided yet another portal to higher and higher levels, all of space and time collapsing down, even a different ordering of causality that I call deep time collapsing down until I entered what I call the core, which was infinite inky blackness, but filled to overflowing with the uh, unconditional love of that divine creative source that so many have described in going to these realms over thousands of years, no matter what their culture. And in that realm of pure oneness, where I experienced that deity of, that, of pure love and of kindness and compassion for all fellow beings, um, it was shown how we are all one, how we're sharing one consciousness, the one mind. And the more uh, in my study since then, in the 10 years since my coma, mm. I've come to study consciousness and the mind-brain relationship and everything that we can discern about the nature of reality. It's become very clear that we need to realize that consciousness is fundamental. This is a position we put forward in our book, mm. the position of um, idealism, ontological or metaphysical idealism, uh, but it's one that I think is the best answer for quantum physics in trying to put together the deeper uh, kind of version of reality here in the early 21st century in trying to make sense of all these experiences. And my coma experience was simply the catalyst that allowed me to make that leap. And so I'm trying with these books and with our presentations uh, and joining with many other scientists that are similarly interested mm. uh, to help the world come to realize the importance of this revelation. Mm. Wow, there's a, a brilliant explanation there of, of everything, and there's probably so much into it. So I'd like to maybe just pick through it a little bit and ask a couple of questions that, that typically come up for me uh, as you've kind of walked through it. Okay. One of them, I suppose, you, you said, you know, there's human language can't really describe what you felt. Feelings, what, 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 even, what, what could you even try and attach to what was being felt during that period? Would you... Uh, Put it towards like fear initially was there i think an important uh point to make here and this is a crucial distinction uh although my near-death experience uh on the grayson scale which is a common scale used to measure such experiences uh scores in the upper two percent two percentile of all such experiences ever 
reported, there was an atypical feature, uh, and that is the fact that I was amnesic for the life of Evan Alexander. I had no words. I had no language. I had no memories of my, my personal life before coma. I had no knowledge of Earth or human beings. I really was starting with an empty slate. Uh, and of course, initially that was kind of a mystery to me because I'd never read the near-death experience literature before, but after this, you bet I wanted to get into it deeply. And after I'd written down, uh, the first 20,000 words of my most basic memories of my experience, only then did I delve deeply into the indie literature mm. and realized that that, uh, that uh, amnesia was a bit of an atypical feature, but in later months and analyzing my experience, it came uh, clear to me why such an amnesia was important uh, for me to get the lessons that I was to get out of this. But um, I think that uh, that kind of sets the stage because that uh, empty slate really allowed for so much uh, kind of knowledge and not going in with any kind of uh, prejudice mm. or um, any kind of presupposition about it all, I think w is something that really enabled me to glean the deepest and most profound lessons from this. Although very important to point out, I'm still uncovering those lessons. People have this idea that you have an NDE and you come back with all this great clarification and knowledge. Well, I can tell you as a scientist who subscribed to the conventional materialist or physicalist scientific uh, thinking before my coma, I came back just shocked witless because uh, my experience completely defied all that. And I realized I had to go much deeper to come up with any kind of notion of uh, the nature of consciousness and, and uh, to explain anything about this experience. And likewise, by extension, many other types of, of such uh, experiences that really um, are not limited by our prior beliefs. That's an important point to make, too. Mm -hmm is the content of these experiences is something the universe gives us. And it often changes one's uh, uh, viewpoint radically. And as a scientist, uh, yes, it changed my viewpoint radically. And the good news is I came to realize that many scientists who study consciousness and study these kind of uh, uh, exotic uh, human experiences are coming to a much richer view of the nature of reality, relationship of brain and mind, and understanding of what we call consciousness. Mm, very interesting. One of the things that I kind of grappled with is, was is that, you know, from the minute we're born, from the minute we start kind of being aware of things around us, we're being conditioned in so many ways to follow rules to follow set language you know that whole idea of independent thinking is probably not even a thing uh, as much as it's imposed upon us within that world as you said you're back on that blank slate the concept of time and and and, and thought how did they kind of mix together and did you have any kind of perspective of a duration of how long you were in this world for? Well, I, I do remember uh, when asked that question within the first week or two of coming back to this world, uh, I said that I was there for months or years. I mean, it's important to point out that what we see as time in this material realm uh, is nowhere near as straightforward as people think. You know, the simple passage of past into present into future mm. is not really the way things seem to work. And especially when you get into the world of quantum physics, um, it becomes apparent, for example, with a, what's known as the participatory anthropic principle introduced by John Wheeler, the famed uh, Princeton uh, physicist who gave us uh, concepts of uh, wormholes and black holes. 
he made it clear that uh, nothing really exists uh, in the past until it's recorded as knowledge in the present. Uh, and that's just the beginning of kind of the deep mystery of time. And what I saw in my experience was a very clear uh, kind of distinction between what we call time flow in this realm. Uh, I saw that as part of the stage setting. It's, it's a very superficial part that's built on the top of reality as it's interpreted by our brain in this four-dimensional space-time, but it's not part of the deeper underlying reality. And that's where I think things get very interesting. And um, in, in a very real sense, we are living uh, in this now, and our even our linguistic brain kind of conspires to contribute to the illusion of a reality to past and future. Uh, and yet uh, there's something uh, different going on here that the scientific world, especially through quantum physics and a uh, deeper unraveling of the workings at the subatomic level and atomic level, uh, show us we really uh, need to expand our possible models of understanding. And something as fundamental as time uh, needs a deeper unraveling to uh, uh, to come to an understanding of consciousness, because really consciousness itself fully includes all of these possibilities, including uh, that limited time flow in this material realm, but also a deep time, mm. uh, kind of a notion of a past and future existing in the now as knowledge and contributing uh, pretty much to our journey of understanding and soul growth. And these are aspects of time and of reality that we can get to in deep meditation mm. uh, and centering prayers by going into consciousness. When you realize the physical brain is not the creator of consciousness, but it is simply a filter that allows the expression of a much grander primordial consciousness. Then you start to see why meditation and going within and practices of mindfulness can be so crucial at discerning more about the underlying truth behind it all. And this is one of the reasons why I really appreciate the work I've been able to do with uh, my life partner and all of this and co-author of the book Living in the Mindful Universe, Karen Newell, because of her work in, in um, specifically uh, the company that she co-founded, Sacred Acoustics, offers tools for people to get into very deep transcendental states of conscious awareness. And this is where we start to realize that we can have far greater insight into the workings of reality than by pretending that the physical brain is creating consciousness out of physical matter alone. Brilliant. Yeah, I would definitely like to get into the discussion of of mindfulness because what what was coming up for me there as you talked through that time I suppose from you know past present and future and, and getting into the now was that meditation and, and mindfulness really talks about just trying to be in the now and that's all there really is was meditation something that was on your radar prior to the uh to to the nde or was it something that you didn't really believe in well, yeah, we discussed this in our, our book, Living in a Mindful Universe, but the important answer to your question is I actually did uh, participate in meditation when I was in college. Uh, I went to the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill in North Carolina, and um, the second week I was there, I got involved with the parachuting team, of all things. Hmm. Uh, it initially was an interest in playing rugby because of a new friend I had who had just spent a year in Northern Ireland, and he came back, and I wanted to join him in the rugby club. And as you can imagine, the clubs were listed alphabetically, and parachuting club was a little above, above rugby club. So <laughs> we 
said, let's go jumping this weekend, and then we'll play rugby next weekend. Well, I enjoyed the parachuting so much, I, I never um, never played rugby. But anyway, made 365 parachute jumps mm. in college. Many of them were competitive, doing free-fall formations, up to 24 jumpers. And a bunch of us on the UNC parachute team started a practice of what's called Silva Mind Control, which was basically a form of meditation back in the 1970s. Mm. And we thought that it helped us a lot in practicing our free fall formations before we'd go up in the jump plane. Uh, and I believe it was very effective there. But for whatever reason, I could not see the role that meditation might play in other aspects of my life, specifically in learning and studying, because I was heading to medical school. But for whatever reason, I did not take silver mind control with me to medical school. And it was... Uh, from 1976 till about uh, 2011 uh, that I let meditation go completely. And only uh, then uh, two and three years after my coma did I start to realize, well, if I want to understand any of this, I need to start exploring consciousness. And that's where this work with Karen and sacred acoustics became so absolutely valuable because I've used those sacred acoustics tones to return to my NDE and develop a very rich relationship uh, with the soul of my father, with uh, that beautiful guardian angel I encountered, who I later found to be uh, a birth sister who I had never known, uh, plus that uh, incredibly uh, indescribable loving force, that healing force of that uh, God uh, energy that creates all in this universe. And that is part of our very conscious awareness, and we can develop a much richer relationship uh, by a practice of going within. Okay, very good. So I think you mentioned sacred acoustics and and how Karen gets involved. Just to kind of continue, just before we kind of get to that point, when you came out of the coma, when you realized, God, this is whatever happened. I need to write about it. Was it you needed to write about this to make sense of it, and then it started to you know morph into something you wanted to share. Just even talk to me a little bit about the the weeks and months straight afterwards. Okay. I would start the first few days. I mean, important to point out that amnesia I had was uh, gigantic in its uh, proportions. So when I came back to this world that Sunday morning, uh, the seventh day of coma, I did not even recognize my mother, my sisters, my mm. sons standing at the bedside. I had no idea who these beings were. Right. Uh, and of course, all my scientific knowledge was long gone. I had no personal memories of Evan Alexander's life. So words and language came back very quickly, literally over days. Um, and then uh, uh, childhood memories, things like that, came back over the next few weeks. And then semantic knowledge, all of my knowledge, brain, mind, consciousness, cosmology, physics, chemistry, etc., came back over about eight weeks. And it was more complete when it came back over eight weeks than it had been before the coma. But mm. during that period of weeks, waiting for all that to return, my default assumption early on was that, of course, this had to be some vast hallucination. Uh, as I told my son, majoring in neuroscience, when I first got out of the hospital, it was way too real to be real. So I assumed, of course, it was uh, some hallucination. And I uh, said, well, maybe there's something about just, you know, destroying the neocortex as much as my doctor said mine had been destroyed. Uh, that gives you the capability of having such an extraordinary hallucination. But the more I then, uh, uh, first of all, re reported all of my findings in, in uh, you know, just in a personal paper to record the memories, because mm. I thought they would all disappear quickly. Mm -hmm. The surprising thing is the memories from deep inside the coma 
are as sharp and clear today as they were 10 years ago when they first occurred. The memories of a psychotic nightmare that occurred in 36 hours immediately after awakening from coma, when I was trying to kind of right myself, uh, those memories faded within weeks. So NDE memories are not at all like a dream or a drug effect or hallucination. Uh, in fact, uh, Bruce Grayson and other scientists who study this kind of thing have defined that the memories of an NDE are richer than for many true, real, extraordinary life experiences, mm -hmm. and they do not change over time. That's a fascinating aspect of those memories. But it turns out that uh, for a long time, I thought, well, this is a, a wild hallucination. It tells us something about consciousness. But the more I then uncover in those early weeks and months about my own illness, the more I realized I was reading the medical records of a dead man, not of someone who came back to this world and then had a complete recovery. And that part was very haunting. Mm -hmm. It turns out that Dr. Bruce Grayson, uh, who uh, has studied NDEs for more than 40 years now as an MD, uh, is, is now writing a case report on my case in which he points out that I was deep in coma due to meningitis, that my recovery uh, was basically impossible by our current medical understanding. It's, it's a, a very deep challenge to understand this kind of recovery, and yet we see this in a lot of near-death experiences, uh, like Anita Morjani's Dying to Be Me, where she had an advanced lymphoma that should have killed her within hours, and yet uh, she had an NDE, and that uh, she knew from that that coming back to this world, the cancer would evaporate, which it did. Mm. Or Mary Neal, the orthopedic surgeon, who was in a kayaking accident in the late 90s down in Chile, and her kayak was jammed under rocks uh, underwater, and she was under for more than 30 minutes. You don't come back from that, and yet she did. And so I think that the important thing that this case report that Bruce Grayson will be putting out about my case simply points out that I had tremendous amount of damage to the neocortex. Any kind of conscious experience from that uh, is unexpected in my view, uh, and my neurologists uh, would, would agree that my recovery was absolutely miraculous. Uh, of course, they can't know my own experience. Only I can know my experience, but sure. I don't think any doctor who reviews those medical records would doubt that I had a very damaged neocortex and would expect very little in the way of robust conscious experience. And yet what I did experience was far grander than anything I've ever experienced any other time in my life. And the fact that all that had to happen between days one and five of my coma is what garners so much attention in the medical and scientific. So as you put the book together and started to write, this started to form, were you in any way afraid of sharing this journey in, in, in the kind of the scientific world that you had, you know, a, a stellar reputation in prior to all of this? And what was your... Well, it, it, it turns out that, um, you know, as I said, initially in the first weeks, my assumption was it was a big hallucination. So let's explain how that happened. But then as I read the NDE literature and especially that revelation I had four months after coma mm -hmm. in realizing who... Uh, that beautiful guardian angel on the butterfly wing was who appeared to me several times. That's what shocked me into the big reality of what this really meant. And at that point, four months after coma, I realized I couldn't just bury this story. It was no longer up to me to just, well, can I share this or not? I mean, I, I knew that, of course, it would rock the boat tremendously in terms of my uh, neurosurgical career. I had taught at Harvard Medical School more yep. than 15 years. 
uh, had published more than 100 papers in the peer-reviewed medical literature. So going out like this was a big risk. I knew that. Hmm. But I also knew that what I had discovered was so important, there was absolutely no way to bury it. And of course, by that time, I was also starting to glimpse that many scientists were far along a pathway of trying to understand these and not simply dismiss them as impossible, which materialist or physicalist neuroscientists would try and do, but admitting that we should, in science, be following the evidence and not be limited by our theoretical uh, models that are woefully inadequate. Uh, and so in following the evidence, uh, I figured I, I needed to go public with my story and share this. Mm. Uh, it reveals a tremendous amount about the horrific black hole that exists in the physicalist position trying to stipulate that the physical brain creates uh, consciousness out of physical matter. That conclusion is false, and it's false because of, of, a, of a deeply erroneous underlying assumption um, in the physicalist uh, camp. Uh, so that's why once I figured all this out four months and plus after my coma, I knew I had to go public with the story, even though I realized there was uh, risk to my kind of scientific credibility uh, over the whole thing. And yet what I can tell you now is there are a number of the leading scientists and consciousness studies around this world who fully appreciate the importance and reality of my story and of my interpretation of it. Hmm. Very interesting. So I guess... As you wrote it and as you started to read the literature, you started to see maybe meditation here might be a, a gateway into replicating that experience. And is that how you and uh, and Karen were able to connect? Or maybe you could talk to me how, how Karen, you came into the into the story, into the journey as you get towards uh, the new book. Well, sure. So Evan and I first met when we were both um at a, an event where we were learning how to use sound to access expanded states of awareness. So we're just talking, having conversation, getting to know each other. His book hadn't come out. He wasn't um, any kind of well-known out in the general world, but I knew he had had a near-death experience just from what some other participants at this event had told me. So I was, I was kind of curious. I had met other people who'd had near-death experiences and they often come back reporting a really important spiritual lesson. So I was I was really interested in that. And I said, what was the most important thing you learned uh, as a result of your near-death experience? And Evan looks at me with this very intent look on his face. And he says to me, the brain doesn't create consciousness. That was his big revelation. And I thought, huh, why would anyone think that it does, is what I said to him, because it didn't make any sense to me that people would believe that consciousness arises out of physical matter. And yet I was kind of outside the kind of normal societal belief that that is in fact the case, the brain creates consciousness. But I had been on a completely different path. And while many of us in our, really our Western world, look to science to give us the capital T truth on certain things, I hadn't found science really offering me too many answers to the burning questions I had, like, why are we here and what is our purpose? Mm -hmm. They like to say a lot of things about how the world works, but not how my psyche works. And so I was much more interested in exploring the unseen, the things that science really can't discover. And what I learned really clearly is that you really can only know things for certain 
when you have a firsthand experience. And so Eben, of course, had his near-death experience. It turned his entire worldview up on end. But I had kind of cultivated this ability to generate firsthand personal experience and prove to myself the reality of things that many people are waiting around for science to discover and let us know about. So I took courses in things like remote viewing, animal communication, um, out-of-body experience, and I learned I could create these kinds of experiences in my own life. And I found that sound was very critical. Now, you spoke of mindfulness. Hmm. Mindfulness is that practice of being in the now moment, right here, right now, no matter what you're doing. So you're not worried about things that might happen in the future or feeling anxiety about things that may have happened in the past. You're only focused on the now moment. That's very challenging for many of us to do. I know when I first started to learn how to meditate, I couldn't stop those racing thoughts from just going on and on, making lists, having arguments with people or maybe yeah. good discussions. And it was sound, specifically sounds like gongs or tuning forks that really helped me get into that now moment. And specifically mm. brainwave entrainment technology, which led me to uh, create the company Sacred Acoustics with my business partner, who is an audio engineer. And uh, we create different types of sounds using binaural beats, monaural beats, other sound effects to really help people get into that really now moment, not just the now moment, but mm. beyond the time and space of here and now and really start exploring. So Eben, you know, he says he went back to visit his near death experience and reconnect with those realms. But we can all use this for all kinds of things, whether it's creative inspiration, quieting the mind uh, for study, for focus, for painting. We have a pilot study going on right now with a psychiatrist in New York City who is helping people reduce anxiety. And so there are so many ways that this type of technology can help us kind of get out of the here and now of everyday awareness and explore for ourselves the reality of these realms that near-death experiences and others talk about. Yeah, I, I, I hear you. And uh, definitely just on the actual, I suppose, meditation techniques or using sound, I actually used your 20-minute um, uh, sound MP3 that uh, that had been sent over. I, I, what I've been doing for the last few years is mixing and matching different types of meditation or mindfulness techniques to, to try and find which one works best. And I, I know there's kind of that whole it's not working sort of feeling, but it just getting familiar and comfortable with the thoughts coming and going is um is is you know obviously most mostly what it's all about i've recently got more into just as you said listening to a bell every 30 seconds or, or one minute um whereas early on maybe it's been more around kind of guided meditation and the the the, the, the I suppose the journey you would be talked through during that period of time and then i've given a a, a go at just complete and utter silence for 10 15 20 minutes for people that are starting out, uh, do you have a recommendation on, on the best form to help people quiet that, the mind and, I suppose, get that practice up and running? Because I think most people just get frustrated after a week or two weeks of trying it because, again, that classic, it's not working, I'm not doing it right, when there is probably no right or wrong way of doing it. Well, that's a very interesting point because I, I like you, search for the 
best methods. And what I really learned through all the many courses, teachers, techniques, methods that I expose myself to is that all of us will have a slightly different definition of the best method because we're all a little bit different. And I noticed in some courses where teachers would be going on and on about a certain method and this is what should be happening, it might not be happening for me, but someone else was having this amazing experience and vice versa. So it's really important to do exactly what you said, which is try all these different methods. And frustrations are very common because we're not used to just sitting quiet and settling the mind. That mind is, uh, you know, it's our friend when we want to go to Harvard and, and get a PhD and, and all of that. But it really gets in the way, you know, as Eben said, our language uh, while we can't find the words to describe sometimes these amazing spiritual experiences, on the other hand, these words seem to limit us into very definite kind of ways of explaining how things happen. And so it really can be useful to find the feeling state. You know, you asked Eben about what it was like to, to feel out in those realms. And I would say when you get into deep states of meditation, it is much less about words and really feeling a certain, I'll even use the word vibration or resonance or, or state, you know, without having to put a word on it, just go in and feel what it feels like. So it's very useful to get the mind out of the way and realize feelings are so important. And um, in terms of beginners, I would say that that's where this brainwave entertainment technology really helps. Um, because I know when I was a beginner, just sitting quietly, waiting for the time to pass, enough time to pass where it would be good enough, you know, whether it's, you say, 30 seconds or up to even 10 minutes. But when I was listening to the sound, I was able to go for 30, 40 minutes and find a zone while that sound was going on where I could really settle into that expanded state of awareness. And so beginners can, can use that. Another tool that I also found very useful was to uh, imagine that my breath was coming in and out of my heart. And that kind of would allow my awareness to move out of my head and into my heart area. You can even imagine your breath is moving in and out of your big toe, anything that kind of moves your awareness out of the, out of the mind. But when I would put my awareness on the heart, that's when I started to really have some really interesting things. Um, when you start putting awareness on the heart, you start to activate, at least I did and many others, stored emotional traumas, things that block us from our real serious spiritual growth. And when you once, when you, when you first begin to focus on the heart and start activating these things, it can be a little overwhelming. But what I ended up realizing is that we're actually releasing these traumas emptying ourselves of these old kind of patterns from within and then they get replaced by whatever you consciously decide to invite in and in my case that was the divine love of source or whatever you want to call it the divine love of the universe universe that we all have access to and so of course that's a little more advanced but clearing that trauma is very useful when you're first starting out because those are the little stories that are running through your head those are the little stories that we can't get rid of when we try to find that quiet space. So finding a way to release some of that can be very useful. And I think Eben is very anxious to add something. Yeah, I was just going to add one thing to, to clarify for your listeners. Important to point out um, that we are not the thoughts in our head. The linguist 
mystic voice in our head, mm -hmm. which is often the voice of the ego, yeah. um, is not who we are. Mm -hmm. uh, I like looking at that little voice in the head, which is also, of course, the voice of rational and logical discussion between humans trying to uh, understand concepts. Uh, but I love the way that Michael Singer puts it in his book, The Untethered Soul. He calls the voice in the head the annoying roommate. <laughs> and I think that says a lot. And what we try and do in our meditation workshops is help people realize that you can let your uh, the voice in your head state an intention, uh, make a request at the beginning of a meditation. But then, especially with something as powerful as sacred acoustics tones, you can allow your higher soul to take over and kind of a higher awareness that is far grander than just that little voice in the head with all the egoic concerns. And the, the reason this seems to work from our viewpoint is that these different sound frequencies, that is a slightly different tone to the two ears, actually influences consciousness at a very primitive level. Uh, that influence is uh, in a circuit uh, down in the lower brainstem that evolved more than 300 million years ago, long before mammals, uh, at a time when uh, reptiles and amphibians were crawling out of the muck, and an evolutionary neurobiologist might be tempted to pin consciousness into that part of evolution. Um, I think it's much more complex than that, but the big point is by uh, using these differential sound frequencies to uh, influence that ancient circuit in the lower brainstem, we're having a very profound effect on consciousness itself. Most of the music and sounds that people listen to or visual stimuli they might use to enhance meditative states are all causing changes way up in the recently evolved neocortex, the human part of the brain. Um, and from our point of view, you get a much bigger effect when you can intercept consciousness at a much more primitive level. And that's why I believe that especially the neural helix form of sacred acoustics, uh, binaural beats, is so powerful at helping people get into transcendental states of conscious awareness, which is really reuniting with their higher soul, which uh, reuniting with that God force at the core of all creation, the very source of our consciousness. Uh, and we can broaden that uh, far beyond the self-imposed limits of the little voice of the ego. Mm. I call the little voice of the ego in my mind uh, a little gremlin, uh, kind of a guy with a, a little or, or a, de a devil, and he, he always seems to be on one the same side, uh, one shoulder rather than the other. Um, but uh, I think being aware of of him and uh, and being able to, uh, I wouldn't say talk with him, but just listen and say, yeah, I hear you. Uh, you know, not today, sort of thing. Make friends with him in some ways is helping, and and that's you know again going back to where I got into meditation tying it into anxiety it certainly helped me massively to kind of unwind and and detach and as you said you are not your thoughts and your thoughts can develop into into feelings and emotions and it's it's really kind of disconnecting all of those for, for sure I'm, I'm interested when i meditate i tend to do with my eyes closed and sitting with with the techniques you're talking about there with the the beats is there a preferred way again there it's you know, a lot of people maybe starting out with their eyes open find it difficult. Any any insights on that? Well, generally speaking, uh, we recommend doing it lying down, which is mm. different from that normal, more traditional uh, sitting up position that that is recommended. And the reason we we recommend lying down is because we really want to. I guess the easiest way to put it is to make the body, the physical body, pro profoundly relaxed 
Mm. Almost asleep, we would say. While the awareness, the mind is still aware and alert. And so the easiest way to get into a very profoundly relaxed physically uh, position is laying down. And uh, this does have some uh, caveats, however. If someone tends to fall asleep very easily, that would not be recommended. In that case, we might recommend that you sit up or, or, or in a reclined position so the neck can fall back. A really common problem with, I know when I had sitting up with meditation is my neck would fall forward and that would cause another type of problem. Mm -hmm. So really finding a relaxed position is what we recommend. Now, some people do this as a walking meditation, which I find really interesting. Uh, but some people do like to listen to these recordings and say, go for a walk in nature or even say while they're on a train or airplane. But walking out in nature while listening, people report that their senses are very heightened, that they're able to sense things in nature that they wouldn't otherwise if they were just walking normally. So we do encourage people to, to experiment and find what works best for them. Some people do um do it while they're sitting up, as you describe, because that's the position that they're comfortable in. And many people who are experienced, say in the lotus position, uh, sitting cross-legged on the floor, may find it's just as easy to put some headphones on. We do recommend using headphones, although if you have a good uh, two-channel speaker system where you hear the left and right equally, that is also effective. Um, now, one thing to remember is we absolutely do not recommend doing this while driving. So many people, yeah, in fact, that's why we don't post our recordings on, on radio channels like Spotify and such okay. and Pandora because people, if they're just listening while they drive, they could go into a state without realizing a very relaxed state. So they're very powerful tones. So you want to keep that in mind when you're finding the right position. Sure. Until uh, until self-driving cars, uh, automated cars come along and then, then we can put them on Spotify and uh, <laughs> hand that over. <laughs> Uh, yeah. <laughs> no it's very very interesting do you i've talked to a lot of people from the meditation world and the different techniques tm you mentioned um as well and it all varies on how long it takes to get i suppose again used to the practice and start seeing some of the benefits from it for me other people noticed the change in me before i think i noticed it what's your experience with was the benefits of of doing it um and getting into the practice and how how quickly they can come along well i think the cumulative effects are just you can't stress enough how a regular practice really is is so much more effective than just a couple times and of course some people just after a couple times start to notice effects and others it takes weeks or even months. It's very interesting you say that other people noticed the effects before you did, because as we start to change, we just know who we are. And, mm -hmm. and it really helps when another person is a reflection of who you are and can give you that kind of feedback. Because even as we're changing, if it's very subtle, we, we may not notice that we're changing because it seems so normal to us. But people have reported uh, immediate effects where they suddenly feel calmer. They've reported um, lasting effects where they listen maybe for a 30, 40 minute session and into the evening and even the next day, they still notice feeling calm. Um, other people, of course, may notice those uncomfortable effects where they're triggering emotional traumas and they think maybe the tones caused me to feel anxious. And really what the tones are doing is just activating something that's already in your system. So it's very uh, useful to look at it that way. Now, 
transcendental meditation, I think we're, they're kind of the standard from back in the 70s who pretty much said 20 minutes twice a day, morning and evening was mm. the recommended stance. And uh, I think for us, 20 minutes does bring a, a, certainly a, a measurable effect when, when repeated uh, regularly. Now, if you can't do it every day or even twice a day, try and do it at least four times a week. And 20 minutes is enough to start. It's enough already with trying to get quiet at first. But what we found is that when you can develop the ability to stay in those states for longer periods, that's when you really start to get into these deeper states where potentially you start interacting with the soul of a departed loved one or start having a life review of your of your own that might happen in a near-death experience. It might happen in a meditative state where you sort of recast past events in a different way. Um, many people use them to visualize things like sports performance or studying good results of a, of a test, mm. um, things like that. So the longer periods really allow you to go deeper, but you don't have to start there. I mean, we used to do hour and 15 minutes as our minimum, just so, so we could get into those really deep states and have a wonderful experience in a, in a, in a, a rich journey, but it's not necessary to do it that way. Some people will listen, um, constantly while they're performing an activity. We have some that are designed for this. So, uh, for example, Eben's son, who's in medical school, he used it to study for board exams for countless hours. How many hours? More Did, than a, more than a thousand uh, listening. Ten minute cycles. Yeah. yeah so right. at least a hundred hours of, oh. of regular listening and his study result, his uh, test exam scores have gone up remarkably since starting to, to study in that fashion. So there's many, uh, many ways to incorporate these kind of tones into your daily life to have an effect on you um, in many, many ways. Brilliant. Yeah, I tend to do something like that myself when I get up early in the morning. I do a bit of writing and whatnot, and I normally put in whatever's on YouTube, maybe some sort of beats that get me into that hypnotic almost state to to really focus it certainly yeah it certainly helps just one other question around this is is silent retreats and you know you can do a five day or a 10 day meditation or something i was considering doing just doing a silent one have you experienced doing multi-day with with this uh technique or how would that work over longer term yeah we have done intensive uh work with the tones where we listen up to say five times a day to a 45 minute recording over and over and over again. And that will tend to get you into cumulatively deeper, more expanded states. And it's, it's useful to do this, um, with, uh, we do weekend retreats. We haven't worked our way up to week long retreats, but we do weekend retreats and it is useful to, um, you know, at silent retreats, you're not just out there all by yourself. Although sometimes you can generally it's, recommended that there's some type of facilitator who can be there for those big cathartic moments. And I think if you're going to listen to tones, at least these sacred acoustics recordings daily up to five times a day, you might want to look at some, some extra support system for uh, helping you get through that. It can be a very, very powerful thing. And those silent retreats or even any kind of spiritual retreat that goes on for about a week are very life transforming when anytime you can kind of escape from the the daily routine escape from the people you're around on a normal basis 
and, and get exposed to another side of yourself, uh, really the essence of who you really are. Many, many teachers out there will provide such experiences and uh, all of us can find teachers that really speak to us and resonate with where we are. We need all the teachers in the world to do exactly what we're doing, which is teach people how to get into those states and find out for themselves who they really are underneath that physical body and daily routine. And I think more and more now than ever, because of this always on, always connected, fast paced world that we're living in, people are looking for that. I think uh, more I'm an embodiment myself of it. And I know a lot of people are just beginning to scratch the surface. Yeah. And it's not just escaping the always on, say, news channels. It's escaping what is true and what isn't true, because we are fed a lot of garbage. We are fed a lot of information that is very confusing and contradictory from all the different news sources, especially here in America and other Mm -hmm. places with political divides going on. And it really can be so helpful to just go within and find that truth from within. Find what feels true to you and go about life feeling confident that you do know what is that real universal truth we can all identify with and not just more talking heads on on screen to agree or or disagree or or fight with. So yeah, very valuable in this time. Absolutely. So I'm conscious of time, guys. I know we've only a few minutes left, and this has been brilliant. I really really enjoyed it so far. Uh, maybe just to wrap up on a, on a few tied off questions. One you'd mentioned consciousness earlier, both uh, both of you, um, and there's like new models of consciousness emerging. Could you maybe talk to me a little bit about what those are, if you can describe them in, you know, in, in, in a summary? Well, I think um, we expand on that kind of discussion in our third book, Living in a Mindful Universe. But the essence of it is when you uh, get rid of the kind of materialist uh, or physicalist assumption that the only stuff that exists in the universe is physical stuff uh, and start to realize that consciousness really Uh, is fundamental in many ways. This is a position that was put forth by uh, some of the leading uh, fathers of quantum physics, Um, Wolfgang Pauli and uh, uh, Erwin Schrodinger and others uh, talked about how consciousness is not derivative from matter at all. But they realized that the experiments in quantum physics uh, are screaming at us that consciousness actually exists as the origin of all else that emerges in this universe. And so the model we discuss in Living in a Mindful Universe takes that position, uh, one of metaphysical idealism, and it starts with what's known as the filter theory of mind, which is uh, not a new theory that came along with the likes of William James at the end of the 1800s, and also uh, Henri Bergson in France and F.C.S. Schiller, uh, and then later in America, Tom, Um, Aldous Huxley, they all talked about the the mind as a reducing valve or filter that allowed primordial consciousness in, but only in uh, very limited states. Uh, And I think that a proper interpretation of quantum physics, and especially the measurement paradox in quantum physics, is essential to this. Uh, But the, the thing that's so hard for people to swallow is the notion that every bit of this is created within the realms of the mental. And yet a lot of advanced physicists to wrestling with quantum physics have come to the conclusion, yes, we live in a mental universe. To try and claim that this is a 
primarily physical is uh, terribly misleading and just not true. And so we're really trying to put uh, this together from a position of realizing that mind is fundamental, that our free will can have tremendous influence on what unfolds in our lives. Um, and the concrete example of that, at least in medicine, is placebo effect. Mm. Uh, you know, placebo effect, which a modern uh, medical studies realize is generally responsible for about 30% of the benefit uh, of any kind of proposed treatment to a patient. That is, just the patient's belief that they are doing something that will make them better is sufficient to make them better. Uh, and there are many thousands of extraordinary cases of placebo effect that completely defy the materialist model of, you know, the physical is all that exists and brain creates consciousness. And yet our medical world seems very... Uh, uh, stuck in that old uh, kind of Newtonian determinism of materialism instead of realizing that quantum physics and modern consciousness studies completely liberate us to a much higher level of influence of our free will on determining the course of emergent reality. And I think that is where all of this starts to get very, very exciting. Um, and especially when you realize that uh, not only uh, is filter theory and handling of the primordial mind the case for each and every one of us individually, but also what modern uh, scientists studying consciousness are coming to realize, it seems we are sharing one consciousness. Things like telepathy, precognition, that show us that our notions of causality in four-dimensional space-time are not quite right. Uh, in many ways are very liberating because they're showing the power of consciousness and of mind to uh, greatly influence all of the emerging world. And so it's not just that a patient can believe they're going to get better and improve their health, but it's that any one of us as a conscious, sentient being can have tremendous influence over our lives. A lot of it has to do with changing our beliefs. I would say that the vast majority of beliefs in our modern culture are falsely limiting. And as we start to realize that and also come to realize the power of this notion of one mind and the brain is a filter but not the creator of consciousness and how it all dovetails with findings in quantum physics that are the most, that's the most proven field uh, in the whole four century history of the scientific revolution, I think you can see how this is all leading to a very uh, kind of amazing new world, one in which love and compassion, forgiveness, kindness, and acceptance are written into the fabric of how we are here to behave as human beings, as sentient beings manifesting this unfolding reality. And that's the most important lesson for this world today, is that we're all in this together. The golden rule applies at the, at the very fabric of the structure of the universe. Do unto others as you would have done unto yourself because you are doing it to yourself in the sense that we're all part of this one vast mind. Hmm. Very interesting. One thing that came up, and I, I promise I won't ask too many more questions, <laughs> I'm just uh, fascinated. Intuition is something I'm always trying to tap into as much as possible. Is there a connection between intuition and your consciousness? Is, what, what does that bring up for you when I ask that? It absolutely is related. You know, when Eben talks about these theories, these scientific theories, metaphysical or ontological idealism, blah, blah, just to connect the dots there very clearly, that mental universe is us, okay? And so if we've, as we've been talking about, our thoughts, our rambling thoughts are not who we are. It's 
that internal essence of who we are. And that's what we're tapping into when you talk about intuition. So when we can really get behind the, the daily mundane sort of thoughts and get into that deeper knowing, that deeper intuition that we access through meditation and other types of, um, of things, that's when we're touching it, touching that primordial mind that we're all a part of. And each and every one of us, no soul left behind, each and every one of us is a part of this unfolding reality. And the more of us who can become more conscious about this unfolding reality, the, that, that we are actually helping to create it, the more that we can be in touch with that, the more our world can really become a consciously created a better place for all. And it, it does have a lot to do with accessing that inner intuition and essence of who we really are. Excellent. I, I love the answer. Um, guys, I'm, I'm going to wrap it up there. Uh, you have the Proof of Heaven and Living in a Mindful Universe, both books I will, I already have Proof of Heaven on my book recommendations page on the site. So I will add Living in a Mindful Universe as well. And any other links that you want to send over guys please do is there any other ways folks could potentially get in touch or reach out to you that uh, they listen in yes well sacredacoustics.com will have more information about the sound technology we've been discussing yeah. and on ebinalexander.com there is a link uh, to a 33-day journey that we created as a companion to the book living in a mindful universe and it includes uh, an email each day for 33 days that kind of hits on a high concept from the book, but also a practice. How do you take that information and apply it in your life? And we also have a, a forum there where people can leave comments. People have, have been leaving them from all over the world. We're thrilled, including Ireland from everywhere. People are joining in and realizing this community of thinkers who really understand these concepts that we're talking about or are interested in exploring them is actually worldwide and growing daily. So that's great news for all of us. Brilliant. Yeah, no, definitely. I'm hopeful more from Ireland will connect in after we put this out as well. Uh, that'll always be good. Evan and Karen, it has been uh, an amazing hour. Time flies by uh, when, when it's such interesting conversation and topics to go over. So I really appreciate both of you giving your time and insight today. I appreciate it. Well, Rob, thank you so very much for having us. And I think uh, our message is clearly one of, of great kind of optimism and hope for humanity. So I'm glad you were sharing it out uh, with uh, uh, Ireland and with uh, people all around this world. And thank the, you very much. And you asked us great questions, and yeah. that always helps with a good conversation. So thank you so much. Yeah, no, I'm... I'm delighted to have been able to ask those questions because, as you can probably detect, they're kind of interesting ones to me. And once there's interest in the conversation, it uh, it makes it all the more fun. So, so guys, look, thanks so much. What I might say is in the future, when I put it out, if folks do reach out to me for questions, if we could ever get back, we could do a little Q&A, perhaps a live something or other in the future. Uh, I know your schedules are busy, but... Um, that would be great. We'd love to. Yeah. We'd well, love to come back. We'll come back for round two. Okay, guys, yeah. look, I'll, I'll let you go. Enjoy the rest of your day. Enjoy your holiday. And uh, it was great connecting. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Rob. We'll talk soon. Thank you. Talk again. Bye -bye. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. So how did you find it? A good show? 
hopefully do take a second or two to let me know and before you do dive off just a couple of quick call outs the new podcast the 864 15 minutes long in fact 864 seconds is the aspiration is now out and ready for listening check it out on the site go to the podcast page there's a link for 864 there or go on to apple podcasts and subscribe that would be awesome the 864 is all you have to search for and it's in all other podcast platforms that you can think of or should be so have a listen every week i release a one minute monday video clip which is also a tip to hopefully make you one percent better check that out it's on the website on the video page did you also know that only about one percent of listeners to podcasts not just my own but all leave a rating leave a review get in touch or give feedback and i would love if we could book that trend and put it to two percent for this one so please do take the time to give me a bit of feedback give me some ideas about future guests or whatever the hell comes into mind just get in touch or rate or review the podcast on apple that helps i'm available at all of the social platforms pretty much all at rob of the green that's either with or without the at sign but you'll find it under that moniker so hopefully i'll hear from you there last couple of quick ones support so i do offer some pro bono coaching get onto the website the support page to get in touch few hours a month happy to do that and if you would like to support the podcast that would be awesome you can do so through patreon and also through purchasing books through the book page on the website that goes through amazon and we get a little percentage i'm not even sure what but it's something and finally just to say thanks for taking the time to listen to the podcast i know there's lots of other shows out there it means a lot that you're checking this one out so have a great rest of day week month year whatever it may be and hopefully you're getting one percent better as a result of these shows take care and good luck